the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 8. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. If you enjoy the silky smooth baritone voice of our very own Mike Delgadio, and who doesn't, you'll be very interested to learn of a new project Mike is helming. Mike and his wife, Tracy Brigden, have created their own audio experiences company called Roaring Box. Roaring Box's first offering is Newfield, a fictional horror podcast written by Tracy and produced by Mike. When Jane Barnes moves to her father's affluent New England hometown for her senior year of high school, she soon discovers that the quaint village has a strange effect on her, especially when she steps into its ancient cemetery, where one of the stones marks the grave of another Jane Barnes, accused of witchcraft almost 400 years before. Jane's search into the past puts her on a collision course with Newfield's history when it becomes clear her namesake ancestor was at the center of some of the town's darkest days. Newfield stars Kate Baldwin, Mike Delgadio, Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, Graham Rowett, and Erica Sanderson. Newfield will be released on May 23rd at newfieldpodcast.com, as well as everywhere you get your podcasts. It's a free two-part series. There's also a link in the show notes, so make sure your horror audio listening takes you to Newfield. Now, once again, I made my weekly trip to the storage unit. The void has been preying on my mind, and it is the whisper before the scream has echoed in my mind day and night like an earworm. The black cat was there again on the grounds. It watched me curiously. I nodded to it like an old friend and entered the unit. The void was gone, obviously, but the electricity, the draw from certain documents and tomes had grown even stronger. I could sense very clearly which ones were calling out to me. So many. It is the whisper before the scream began echoing in my head even louder. Anger bubbled up inside me. I was sick of this. Something was calling out to me the strongest as I stood there. It was a collection of handwritten notes held together by a rusty paperclip. Clearly, this was the one I was meant to take, like a good little puppet. My hand brushed over it, then passed it. Instead, I grabbed a book. It was some romance novel with a dashing shirtless pirate wooing a comely maiden. It gave off zero energy. It had no desire for me to take it. But... I took it. 
That would be the story I performed in the next episode. A chapter from a swashbuckling erotica. Never hurts to mix things up. Confident in my decision, I left the unit and went home. I opened the book, ready to read some high seas seduction and pick an appropriate passage, but the pages were blank. And tucked inside the book was a collection of handwritten notes held together by a rusty paperclip. This was impossible. This was infuriating. I flung the book to the floor. The label on the back winked up at me. The bookstore. The thickening plot. (laughs) Odd name for a bookstore. And its address? Yes, found on the east coast of the U.S. I've been trying to Google it since I got the storage units. Not one result. The listed phone number is disconnected. Even entering the address into Google Maps constantly results in an error. I made a plan. I would perform these handwritten notes, fine, but it was time to pay the thickening plot a visit. Which, dear listeners, is going to take me some time. It's not easy for a Canadian to get into the U.S. these days. And as such, I'm having to put the podcast on hold. Episode 9, with hopefully answers about this accursed bookstore, will have to wait. So, next week, Season 16 is taking a break. Instead, I've unearthed an episode of Sleepless Decompositions so grotesque, so horrifying, that we've previously only kept a single copy of the file on a USB stick locked in a vault. But these are extreme times, so they call for extreme measures. Be forewarned. Next week, things get nasty. But today, I set off for the East Coast on a two-week trip. So I'll catch you in a fortnight when we return with Episode 9. But for now, I shall read you these accursed notes I've been forced into possessing. The name Elizabeth Davis is scrawled in different handwriting at the top. And the first note begins, Dear Goodwin Family... Dear Goodwin family, we are so happy to welcome a new family in our cozy little neighborhood of Marigold Fields. We strive to help keep our neighborhood beautiful and peaceful. If you haven't had a chance yet, please read over the rules regarding exterior decoration and conduct enclosed. If you have any questions or just want to say hi, stop by our meeting on Tuesday the 23rd at 8 p.m. at The Long's Place, 512 It's the house with the beautiful roses in the front. We also like to use this meeting as a time to share food and fellowship with each other, like many parties after our work is done. Hope to see you there. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, While we have yet to meet, I thought I would give you a warning about the state of your flower beds. During the long absence between owners, the flower beds were left in a state of considerable neglect. I know that you're busy with moving in and all of that, but the flower beds filled with just rows and rows of dead plants do project a negative impact on our community here, not to mention the dead ivy crawling up the walls. While you don't have to plant anything right away, the dead plants should at least be removed. Sincerely, Cole Wamsley, President of the Homeowners Association. P.S. 
We know that the previous family, the Hendersons, were valued members of our community. We hope that you find your place here in our loving community as they did. Dear Goodwin family, dogs can't be allowed to be outside unattended without a fenced-in area. According to the Baxters, they saw your golden retriever running out of the house onto the sidewalk in the evening, unaccompanied by any member of your family. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, I highly sympathize with the pain of your lost dog, but our rules do prohibit the posting of flyers on the lampposts and street signs of our neighborhood. However, you can put the flyers in mailboxes around the neighborhood. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, we are glad to see that you're putting forth an effort to help keep your house beautiful. I saw Martha outside planting some lovely geraniums and peonies in the flower bed. I also noticed that a member of your family must have cleared away those terrible ivy vines. We just wanted you to know that your efforts are appreciated. I know things may have been a little bumpy with two warning of violation letters within your first month, but I'm hoping we can smooth this over and I look forward to a bright future together. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, it's only been a week, but already the flower bed has turned into a wilted jungle especially with the ivy coming back already. While I appreciate your efforts to try to maintain the gardens of your house, the lack of green thumb in your family is apparent. You should consider hiring a professional. It's a small price to pay for a well-maintained yard. I personally use A to Z landscaping for my yard. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley. Dear Goodwin family, we wish to remind you that while we understand the frustration of a missing mailbox, only certain styles and colors are allowed. A red wooden box does not match either of these regulations. Also, I noticed that cracks have formed over one of your windows. I understand that the glass in old houses may be more fragile than our modern glass, and thus easier to crack, but it really must be fixed ASAP. You don't want a draft hiking up your heating bills, after all. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley. Dear Goodwin family, we are glad to see you have moved on from the loss of your beloved family pet. However, the new dog that has been seen around your house has also been out unaccompanied. Also, your dog has been described by Rebecca Tapia as, quote, a big black dog, his shoulders up to my bike handles with red eyes like headlights in the night, end quote. This does not sound like any of the dogs on our approved breed list. Please consult the list provided in the handbook I sent you when you moved in. If you have lost it, we will send you another. If you wish to ask for an exception for your dog, please attend one of our meetings and bring proof of vaccinations. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. P.S. Don't forget to mow your lawn. These late summer rains will cause it to grow faster than you can imagine. The ivy is bad enough as is. Dear Goodwin family, 
There have been reports from neighbors of screams originating from your house late at night, between the hours of 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. These screams have been loud enough to disturb their sleep. I wish to remind you that our neighborhood has set quiet hours so that we can all be well-rested and healthy. You can look at the quiet times as outlined in the handbook. Also, we wish to congratulate you on the new window shades you've placed around your house. However, some neighbors are worried you might have picked plastic, which is a banned material for window shades. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, there have been reports of your dog out in the neighborhood unattended, and it gave Alice Long a bad fright. If you cannot control your pets, action will be taken. Also, your garage door needs a new coat of paint to keep it from falling into disrepair, which is against our bylaws. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, while I'm glad to inform you that there are no more reports of your neighbors being menaced by your dog, which, I have to remind you, still needs an official exemption from the association due to it not being on the approved breed list, there have been reports of a party in a backyard. While we believe that you have the right to associate with whomever you want on your property, Rebecca Tapia said she found the cloaked figures, quote, disturbing, walking without footsteps, their faces entirely blank, end quote. Todd Hall reported that he tried to greet your guests, but none of them responded to him while they were gathered in your backyard, slowly shifting in patterns he couldn't make out. While this isn't a technical violation letter, we pride ourselves on having a friendly neighborhood, and it would be nice if you asked your guests to make an effort to be courteous to your neighbors. We haven't had much of a chance to talk with you, especially since your wife has refused to leave the house, even to join the morning jogging group. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, we wish to remind you that fences are also covered in our guidelines. While we don't have regulations on the colors that you can paint your fences, we do require that the painting be neat and professional looking. The black letters scrawled across your fence are messy and look very unpleasant. Also, stay out repeated over and over does not communicate the mood that Marigold feels wishes to convey to its residents and visitors. If you're having issues with any of your neighbors making themselves overly welcome on your property, I will advise you to bring up this matter at one of our meetings. We can help mediate any problems you have with your neighbor. Just a reminder, our next meeting will be this Tuesday at 8 p.m. at the Long's house. Feel free to bring snacks to share. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, your gutters are in violation of the Home Association rules. During the last rainfall, the rust that had built up in your gutters caused the water to leak out a red color and stain the walls of your house. This site is not only not aesthetically pleasing, but poorly working gutters can cause water damage to your house. I recommend a professional cleaning service if you're too busy to deal with it yourself. I recommend Gutter Genius. Also, I suspect the overgrown ivy is making your gutter problem worse. You really do need to deal with it. Also, 
Neon radioactive green is not an appropriate color for your garage. Please consult the handbook and the local home improvement store to pick out a proper color. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, this is the second time you have violated the quiet hour rules with screaming. If you keep violating this rule, we will be forced to impose financial penalties. Sincerely, Cole Walmsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, Todd and Janet Hall watched you last night as you stood over a large bonfire in your backyard. They say you didn't acknowledge their greetings, but continued to just laugh as you watched the flames. I wish to remind you that incineration of garbage is not allowed following our environmental pollution rules. If you wish to have a bonfire, we have facilities at the community center. We have a large fire pit along with other facilities like a pool and tennis court. We would love to see you there, especially since no one has seen your wife at the window at all for several weeks. Let her know that her neighbors miss seeing her face. Sincerely, Cole Wamsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Goodwin family, we love that you're embracing the holiday spirit this October. However, this neighborhood is home to many kids of all ages. Your current lawn decoration of a scarecrow wearing your clothes covered in blood splatters is not appropriate and has deeply frightened some of the children already. I encourage you to dismantle it and to seek alternative, more family-friendly decorations. Also, your mail is piling up on your porch and is violating our rule of keeping your residence neat and well-maintained. Sincerely, Cole Wamsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Dear Sunak family, welcome to Marigold Fields. We know that there was some trouble with the previous owners, but we are hoping that you will stay with us for a long time. The next meeting of the Homeowners Association is at the Long's Place this Tuesday at 8 p.m. We're hoping that you will be more friendly than the last family. Sincerely, Cole Wamsley, President of the Homeowners Association. Have you ever thought about what might be in your house? I know that sounds ridiculous. Of course you have. You probably put it there. But did you? How many of you built your houses yourself? <laughs> Can you be sure there's nothing under the floorboards or between the rafters or in the walls? And in this tale shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, we meet a man who has more than one house to worry about the contents of. Performing this tale is Dan Zapula. So check every nook and cranny, test out any loose bricks, explore every floor. Don't assume you know everything about the layout of your home. After all, sometimes 
There's another house beneath our basement. My wife Sandy and I recently moved into a housing development a half hour outside of the city. We set up most of our things, furniture and the like, though we still had boxes to unpack. After storing a few summer chairs and other less essential items in the large basement, I noticed an acrid smell that only worsened when it rained. Before moving in fully, I wanted to fix whatever mildew or animal remains might be causing the issue. When Sandy was at work in her home office, I descended the creaky open stairs wearing a dust mask and brandishing a spray bottle of bleach like some antiseptic cowboy. The basement has no windows, mind you. It's just a four-cornered concrete space. Empty aside from a few cardboard boxes of old items I'd carried down a week earlier. I began inspecting the concrete walls for mold spots or water damage, but found no source of the foul odor. It was as standard and minimal as a basement could be, aside from the lack of windows. Then, after a bit of following the scent trail, I found it. Underneath the stairs, in the corner where the two walls and floor met, was a slab of mismatched concrete. I stared at it in curious wonder, realizing that it looked like an opening that had been sealed up at some point. I realized there was likely a burst pipe or other damage beneath that had been sloppily repaired by a previous tenant. After living in the city for 15 years, I was used to landlords pulling quick and dirty fixes to avoid out-of-pocket work. This was our home now, though, and I was determined to fully fix it before we settled in. As afternoon faded into evening, Sandy was still shut in her study, editing books. She's the breadwinner. So I went to work donning my rattiest pair of jeans and a t-shirt I'd ruined when painting the rooms. I descended the creaky wooden stairs into the basement, ready to bust open the concrete rectangle. Turns out, the concrete slab wasn't even sealed, and it lifted easily with my crowbar. I slid it aside with an abrasive rumble to reveal an old stone stairway descending down to a further level. A sub-basement. It looked ancient, much older than the rest of our house. Our home was estimated to be from the 1960s, but the cobbled rocks in the stairs descending into shadow looked to be a few hundred years old. I looked down into the darkness, then climbed back up the rickety basement stairs to my home. I headed into the garage, searching through unpacked boxes of tools before finding my flashlight. Curiosity grew as to what could possibly be down there. I was well aware that many people built fallout shelters in the 60s in preparation for a looming nuclear war. I first wondered if it could be one of those, but it clearly predated 20th century construction. My next guess was that it was a hiding spot built to help the Underground Railroad. I'd seen similar hidden spaces in old Quaker farmhouses to help hide runaway slaves. 
something I respected greatly. Once I began my descent, however, I realized that this was neither of the aforementioned. My jaw hung open at the discovery. There was a room-by-room copy of the first story of our home in that hidden sub-basement. Every wall and doorway was identical. I stared in awe when I realized the outer walls even held windows in the same locations. Warped thick glass reflected my flashlight's beam. I approached one in amazement, staring at a worm squirming against a pane that seemed to barely hold in a wall of compacted dirt. I continued into the familiarly laid-out abode, observing the ancient stone walls. Every wall, windowsill, and fixture was similarly placed as in our home up above, yet everything was archaic and spooled with long-abandoned cobwebs. There were cast-iron hinges on each of the petrified wooden doors. A thick layer of dust clung to every mantle and surface, which looked speckled and stained with centuries of use. Most bizarre of all was the fact that not only was the floor plan of our home above replicated, but every bit of furniture that we'd moved in so far had an antique matching set. It was like a time-warped version of our home down to the furniture itself. A pre-Victorian sofa sat in the exact location as our modern one. Its threadbare cushions deflated from wear and decay. I nearly yelped when I saw a centipede wriggle out from a hole in the cushions. I glanced around to see stained wooden chests from a bygone era. In the exact same locations as the cluster of cardboard boxes that lay unpacked up above. My flashlight's pale beam danced with motes of weightless dander as they illuminated the most notable difference. Though each piece of furniture was in place, the cold stone rooms were all devoid of lamps or even candles. I walked on to the mirror version of our kitchen. Within, there was a mortar and pestle filled with a congealing black paste on a wooden countertop scarred with lines from a heavy blade. It was in the same location as the blender I wear up smoothies in each morning. It was beyond coincidence. It was as if our place had been studied and recreated with furnishings and tools from another time. My heart pounded in my chest as paranoia built. I darted the circular flashlight beam through the shadows which raced and jumped behind uneven tables and speckled jars of dried herbs. Then I noticed the dark wood of the front door. It was in the exact spot as our own. I approached it as curiosity brimmed. What could it even lead to? My pulse quickened. Everything felt wrong. Like I was exploring some part of the world that was not meant to have been discovered some arcane place that had been hidden for centuries for some reason. I couldn't stop my approaching legs or my twitchy hand reaching forward, though. The need to know what lay beyond that door was immeasurable. I grabbed the cast-iron latch handle, pressing the cold metal mechanism down. 
and hearing an echoing click. I then pulled it open, half expecting an avalanche of earth to spill over me. But only cold air met my face, and I at once sensed the depth before me. I aimed the flashlight's beam into a cavernous darkness and felt a tremble in my bones. On the ground before me was a cobblestone pathway leading out into a limestone tunnel. I aimed the flashlight upward to the roof, illuminating the long fangs of a thousand stalactites sprawling out past where my light could penetrate. It looked endless. A massive cave system hidden beneath our home. Then I heard a sound. An echoing set of clicks from deep within the absolute blackness of a space with no light of its own. It was a familiar clicking, but not the drips of the limestone nor the rattle of debris. My stomach squirmed as my mind made a connection that filled me with a bitter realization. It was the clicking of a tongue. I aimed the beam forward, reaching my arm out fully as if it would somehow light up the source, and it did reflect off of something. Two gleaming circles from deep in the shadows. Two eyes that were watching me from the cold tunnel. I backtracked slowly, praying my movement would be unnoticed. I tensed with each sound my sneakers made as I stepped back towards that strange, mirrored home below our basement. Then a wet slapping, fast in its rhythm, echoing as it got closer. The clicking sped up too, blending into a croaky, gravely groan. Whoever was down there was racing towards me, and I ran. I raced back into the copied house and slammed shut the heavy door, which muffled the grating clicking that had come closer far too quickly. I ran through the ancient home, only then noticing that the stains on each wooden surface were far too dark. Each wooden surface was textured with nicks and grooves, reminiscent of a cutting board. I raced towards the stairwell, turning back at the sound of an explosive bang as the heavy front door was flung open and I caught a glimpse of something that could have been mistaken for a man had I not held my flashlight beam steady, drawing figures from the shadows. Milky white eyes and a gaping mouth far too large, similar to the unhinged jaws of a feeding snake. It wore clothes reminiscent of early North American settlers. Puritan or maybe pilgrim, something that belonged in colonial times. It had a heavily stained and exaggeratedly large collar, more like a ruff and matching cuffs caked black with filth. The fingers were far too long and far too swollen at each knobby knuckle. Those eager digits extended like Alaskan crab legs as they reached towards me. My heart pounded and iced over in dread as I climbed the stairwell back up into our basement. I slid the cement slab over the opening just as it came into view, the gaping mouth emitting a bassy clicking that vibrated my guts. 
I lay down on top of the poured cement trap door to keep it in, half expecting the creature to launch me up and off before those long fingers speared into and eviscerated me. I knew I had to protect my wife, so I lay there, stiff as a board, ready to resist. Then the sound of a door above creaked open. Sandy. I was about to yell up to her to get an overnight bag and to start the car. I expected she'd ask questions, but I'd tell her we were in danger and I'd explain later. I was about to issue orders, but I closed my throat tight, swallowing the breath that might form the first word. I lay still as I could and breathed hushed, shallow breaths as I watched through the gaps in the wooden stairs, the tattered fabric of a long, antiquated dress sway against muck-spattered, buckled shoes. I laid there, making sure my phone was in silent mode, careful not to shift the keys in my pocket. I have been here for hours now, piecing things together, like how those things likely recreated the layout of our home in order to easily navigate it without sight, how my pursuer from those dark depths stopped once the trap door was back in place, unable to sense anything beyond the flat surface, how they're both now patiently waiting for me to make a sound. Now I watch those two strange shoes between the top two stairs, praying they'll just retreat back inside to give me a window of time in which to escape, praying they won't descend the twelve steps between us if my stomach finally rumbles in hunger or the fetid stink finally causes me to sneeze. I lie here in silence, atop the cement trap door, listening to those throaty, clicking sounds from above. Have you ever agreed to house-sit for someone, particularly over a few nights or more? It's weird, being in someone else's abode by yourself, essentially living there. You're meant to make yourself comfortable, treated as your own. You're living there to do them a favor after all, but it feels off. And in this tale, shared with us by author Daniel Allen, there's even more weirdness afoot than simply being at home in someone else's. Performing this tale are Elana Charnel and Penny Scott Andrews. So get comfortable, kick back, relax. Then have a series of horrifying experiences that cause you to exclaim, I'll never spend the night at my sister's house again.
My sister Jacqueline left for a honeymoon three weeks ago. As a proud mother of two beagles, she offered me a house to myself, a solid internet connection, and all the hot water I could use, not to mention a healthy stack of 50s, to live in her house for a few weeks and dog sit. I've got to be honest, I didn't visit her house very often and I'd never spent the night. She'd only moved out of the family home a few short years ago and still showed up to the weekly family dinner, so it's not as though I had much reason to drive out to see her. I headed over to the house after work on a Monday. Her place was a bit out of the way, so the sun was already low in the sky as I neared the neighbourhood. The long, winding roads were all pretty unfamiliar to me, especially at that time of night. She lived in one of those outer suburbs, not what you'd call country, but the town was pretty self-contained and surrounded by a significant ring of housing developments that weren't going anywhere fast. As I turned into her street, I was met with a wall of foliage on either side, giving the road an almost claustrophobic atmosphere. The leaves were all a deep golden brown. It was springtime, but in Australia it wasn't exactly unusual to see trees that lacked cheerful greenness at any time of the year. I vaguely knew where her house was in the street, so I headed down the narrow dirt road away until I saw the mailbox. It was a pretty rustic thing that she'd built herself. Since moving out, she'd developed a skill for etching wood that had led to a number of artistic projects, and a mailbox had been the first. The words, Four King Drive, were carved in a playful, half-cursive hand across the top. She'd always loved the address of her house, as she said it sounded like a British person swearing with road rage. I pulled my little red mini into her garage and headed inside to see my nieces. Jessie, a black beagle, I was standing on her hind legs, climbing my stomach, wanting pats before I'd even set a foot in the door. Sophie, a purebred, was much more shy and sat at the end of the hallway staring me down, as though questioning how I dare be anyone except my sister or her new husband. I was greeted with a short novel of post-it notes with all the pertinent information I'd need and most of what I wouldn't need as well. I skimmed quickly for the good stuff, Wi-Fi password and which of the ten settings on the oven translated to on. As the night wore on, Sophie warmed up to me, which wasn't surprising as she did know me, and the two dogs seemed to go about their usual routine with or without me. They ate, tried their best to steal my food as well, and Jessie took a trip out to the yard every hour or so to have a long barking session at nothing in particular. I sat at my computer and spent the night playing games in the living room, and when it got late and I was struggling to stay awake, I made my way to the spare bedroom where I'd set up the bed. The two dogs both jumped onto the bed to join me, naturally taking up about three quarters of it, and graciously allowing me to worm in where I could fit. Sleep came quickly and effortlessly. I opened my eyes to darkness. As anyone who has slept in an unfamiliar bed would know, the feeling of waking up in a room you don't recognise can be startling for a second or two. After realising where I was, I began to wonder why I'd woken up with such a start in the middle of the night. It really wasn't like me, as I usually slept like a log. My bleary eyes looked to the foot of the bed, and as I tried to focus on the doorway, I felt my heart skip a beat. A dark outline was framed in the light of the hall. I wasn't exactly thinking clearly due to a mixture of being half asleep and being terrified, so I rolled to the side and grabbed my phone. Smashing the power button illuminated the room with a bright artificial blue. My eyes stung from the sudden brightness, and as I turned to the doorway, I saw... absolutely nothing. 
There was no outline, no movement, just a dark and empty hallway. Hell, the dogs were even lying down, with no indication they'd even been awake. Looking at the dimming phone display, I saw the time read four o'clock. I rolled my eyes. I had work in the morning. I already had to be up earlier than usual to make the longer drive. Why did my brain have to wake me up and pull shit like this? I pulled the covers up, almost covering my face, and rolled back over to get what little rest I still could. The next time I woke up, mercifully, was to the sound of my alarm. I barely thought of the strange events of the night before, shrugging it off as a bad dream, the result of being in an unfamiliar place. I showered, getting ready for work. A few choice swear words were dropped when I found out that all the hot water I could use really meant about ten minutes of hot water followed by an abrupt hail of ice water. As I downed a coffee, I headed to the garage door, then stopped in my tracks. My keys were missing. I knew I'd left them on the hook by the door. I mean, that's what it's there for, after all. I looked around the few rooms I'd been in the night before and couldn't see them. As I headed back down the hall towards the kitchen, a flash of light struck my eye. My keys had caught the tiniest beam of light sneaking through the curtains where they sat, on the bedside table of the master bedroom. Not the small, cosy, spare bedroom I'd spent the night in, but the master bedroom I hadn't even been in. I honestly didn't even think the door had been opened since I'd been here, yet there it stood, a door stop holding it ajar as though this was the most normal of circumstances. I darted into the room, not wanting to spend one more moment than I had to in there. I grabbed my keys from next to the perfectly made bed, flew out the door, and drove to work, anxious and confused. Was last night really a dream? Or was there someone else in the house that night? The thought of a stranger being in the house without me knowing sent shivers down my spine, let alone the idea that they were standing at the foot of my bed. If it hadn't been a dream, then that meant the dogs had been awake, which scared me even more. Jessie was friendly to a fault, but Sophie was reserved and defensive. If there had been someone at the foot of the bed and she wasn't barking, it meant one of two things. Either they frightened her into silence, or, even worse, she recognised them. I worked in a small factory. I dropped out of university after a bachelor's degree and basically just fell into the work by chance. It wasn't the most thrilling, just small assembly work, but for the most part, it let me zone out in a world of my own and be alone with my thoughts. That was all very well, but today I was lost in thought about the weird events of the last night and that morning. I just couldn't get my head around it. Sure, I could have dreamt the nighttime visitor, but my keys couldn't have gotten into that room, so neatly on the bedside table. Eight hours of mulling over the same few thoughts crawled by, and soon enough I was arriving back at my new home. The evening went by without anything out of the ordinary happening. Jessie was a constant companion, always seeking attention and happy to make a fuss when she didn't get it. Unfortunately, this often meant climbing up my leg and sinking her claws in until I patted her enough. Heading to bed, I almost ran to dive under the covers before the dogs could claim their spots. After about ten minutes of being nudged, kicked and stood on, I fell asleep in my corner of the bed. I found myself awake again. It was pitch black, and yet, instead of the crippling lethargy of someone who had woken in the middle of a good night's sleep, I felt eerily lucid. My eyes were drawn to the doorway almost instantly. The moonlight once again streamed down the hallway, and in my state of awareness I was able to see more detail in the figure's silhouette in front of me. The shape in the doorway was slender, 
I would have said female, but I couldn't be sure. Around the pitch black of the shadow, the light scattered through long, pale hair. Hello? My voice scraped out, partially due to fear, but mostly due to the dry throat of someone who breathes through their mouth in their sleep. The head of the figure twitched slightly. It took me a moment to realise why. That they must not have been looking at me, instead staring at the point on the windowed wall above my head. After I spoke, their attention snapped to me. It was then that I became aware of the noise. A guttural, rattling noise that sounded like someone struggling to breathe whispered through the air. It resonated deep within me, and I felt a shiver down my spine. The figure took a step forwards, and instinctively my hand flew to my phone. I didn't take my eyes off the figure, but the instant the screen lit the room with anything more than moonlight, I was staring at an empty space. I sputtered, nearly choking from shock. There was a bulge under the sheets where one of the dogs slept, and Sophie's tired eyes greeted me as she looked up from the floor next to me, awoken by the noises I'd made. If someone had just been in the room, surely there'd be some sort of reaction from the dogs. Had it been anything at all, or was I certifiably insane? I didn't believe in the paranormal. I laughed at people on TV who pretended to talk to ghosts. I looked at the phone's screen and felt my stomach drop. 4am. Wednesday rolled by without incident. Well, without incident was being a bit generous. I still woke up at exactly 4am, but I saw nothing that night and managed to just roll over and get some sleep. On Thursday morning, I found a message waiting for me on my phone. My brother-in-law had left a parcel in his car, still parked in the garage, and someone would be coming around that night to pick it up. I replied that that was fine and let him know what time I'd be home. On my way home from work, I drove through town and rolled my eyes so far back into my head that I nearly crashed my car. Let me paint you a picture here. Halloween really isn't a thing here in Australia, or at least not where I'm from. Yes, people have parties and take advantage of the opportunity to slut up various occupations. But no, we don't trick or treat. I'm in my 20s and I've never known anyone who personally did it. I'm pretty sure the local schools warned parents against it with stories of predators and psychopaths, but whatever the case was, the holiday just wasn't a common Australian thing. So to drive through town at 5.30 and see hordes of children being escorted through the streets was an unpleasant surprise that meant I'd have a regularly interrupted evening. Not in the least because a single knock at the door would set both dogs barking. I also didn't have anything resembling candy to give out. At best, there were a few family-sized chocolate blocks that I was working through. I pulled into the street and, with a little relief, saw that a few houses in the street had mailboxes with ribbons tied around them, and others had porch lights lit up despite the sun still being out. I hoped this meant that my house would be clearly not participating, as I had neither. I headed inside curmudgeonly and went to the back end of the house, hoping the dogs would stay nearby and not notice anyone outside. I groaned when the first knock on the door came, but then remembered the package I had to give to some person I'd never met before, and I realised I couldn't simply ignore the knocks. Sighing at the symphony of barks, I headed to the door to see shadows dancing on the heavily frosted glass. I discovered that the door had no peephole, no hidden camera, and while the adjacent rooms had windows that could see the street, neither allowed me to see anyone right at the door. Admitting defeat, I opened the door and had to smile and apologise to some preteens who thought wearing ballet outfits they obviously owned already was a costume. 
I basically shut the door on their drooping faces, but I really couldn't bring myself to feel bad. This was obviously organised by the locals. There was clearly signage for participating houses. It wasn't my fault they ignored that. Basically the same encounter played out a few more times. I was relieved that all the groups were accompanied by adults hanging back at the street, so there was no real risk of any actual tricks. As the door was knocked on for the fourth time, I swung it open, already halfway through my apology, when the words caught in my throat. It wasn't a high school kid in a half-assed costume in front of me. A tall woman stood before me, rail thin and with dirty blonde hair that fell limply onto her shoulders. A tattered white dress clung to her thin form. I was shocked at the depth of her costume. Her skin was made up wherever it was visible, tinted a pale blue, almost white. Veins had been drawn onto her, twisting up her arms, so lifelike I would have believed they were real. The most vivid points were her eyes. The irises and pupils were a milky white, and they were surrounded by a dull red of irritated and burst capillaries. They almost glowed red, and I thought to myself that the lenses must have cost a fortune. The woman looked straight ahead, a little above me. She started to raise one of her arms in front of her, and I could see the radius and ulna rotate gruesomely in the attenuated arm. Sorry, I'm not doing that tonight. I spoke with more force than I intended. I pushed the door to close it and felt it nudge her outstretched arm. In the last moment, right before the door clicked into its frame, I nearly froze in terror. That same throaty rattling I had heard a few nights before crept through the crack in the door for just a moment as it closed. That same noise, like a lung desperately trying to inflate but finding no air. Survival instinct stalled my mind and I flipped the lock, staggering backwards. I guess this was where I found out that I was more flight than fight. My brain was trying to tell me something, but the adrenaline made it difficult to be rational. However, when my eyes slid from the lock to the door itself... I realised what it was. Unlike every other time I had shut the door that night, no shadowy figure behind the glass moved away and faded. In fact, there was no shadow whatsoever. Either that woman had vanished so quickly that I couldn't register it, or she had never moved and somehow cast no shadow on the door. There was no goddamn way I was about to open the door and test that theory either way. I slumped to the ground adrenaline leaving me for post-panic exhaustion to take hold, and I simply sat staring at the door for a long time, until the sun started to set. A shadow appeared at the door and knocked. I couldn't bring myself to get up from the floor, so watched as they knocked again. A few seconds passed and my hips started to buzz as my phone lit up. I answered. Hi, it's Sydney. Rob's friend? Sorry, I'm a bit late, but I'm out the front to pick up that parcel. Oh, yeah. I'll be right there. I gathered myself and, waiting a few seconds so as not to show that I'd been right by the door, I grabbed the package from below the hooks which held all the keys and opened the door. A small, smiling woman greeted me and happily took the parcel. We made small talk briefly. I thought you might have thought I was trick-or-treaters. I half laughed and sent her on her way. Still harrowed by the events, I barely slept. I found myself awake every other hour, but to my surprise, when 4am came around, no figure stood in the doorway, no choking rasp filled the air. A whole week passed, and no figure had been seen. 
Nothing out of the ordinary happened except for the nightly waking at 4am for no discernible reason. I was going to sleep earlier, so I was still getting a normal sleep cycle in around the event, so life was progressing as usual. I'd tried a sleeping pill, but other than passing out much faster and some vividly weird dreams, they had no effect, and I was still pulled out of the trippy slumber at 4am. In early November, the blazing sun poured down through our charming little hole in the ozone layer. A heatwave spread over the south, and temperatures reached a searing 37 degrees. I cranked up the air conditioner and it brought the house to a pleasant temperature. As I was about to head to bed for the night, the air was much cooler than the day, so I turned off the AC. It was humid in the bedroom, so I decided to crack the window for a breeze. I found it was, of course, locked. I walked to the front door and grabbed a fistful of key rings from the hooks and set about trying each one in the lock. As far as I could tell, none of the keys matched the lock, and I couldn't even see one that looked the right shape. Defeated, I put the keys back and went to sleep with the covers completely thrown off. For the first time, neither dog was pressed up against me on the bed, as they too felt the muggy air getting to them. The next thing I knew, I was awake. I was awake, but my eyelids wouldn't open. Through my childhood, I had suffered sleep paralysis before, but never like this. In past episodes, my eyes would open, and my brain would repeatedly tell me I was getting up, as though I dreamt standing up and took a few steps before snapping back to being in the same half-asleep state. Over and over this would happen, until a delirious state of fear and frustration washed over me. This was different. I was wide awake, completely aware, but not a single muscle in my body would respond to my command. The quiet room was pierced by that horrid, shallow rattling, but it wasn't coming from the doorway. It was so quiet yet so close that it must have been coming from only centimetres in front of my face. That was when I felt it. The dull tingle of moist air drifting onto my face in unison with the tiny, hissing breaths. I could do nothing except lay there, motionless, as that thing hung over me. So close I could feel every fractional inhale and exhale shift minuscule hairs on my face. It seemed like hours before I was able to will myself to slip back into unconsciousness. I woke in the morning with a start, shooting bolt upright in the bed, stifling a scream at the events which seemed to have happened only moments ago. I cringed as I felt a cold air swirl over my neck, and whirling around, I saw that the large window behind the headboard was wide open. I shuddered and tried to shut it, only to find the lock was still closed over and wouldn't allow me to close it fully. As I hurried out of the room, still feeling completely violated, my jaw dropped. Every window was open. The kitchen, the lounge, every single room had every single window open. And worse, everyone was still inexplicably locked. I headed to the bathroom to shower before work and the sight in the mirror made my heart thud to a stop. Tender, yellow-blue bruises interlocked elegantly around my throat. Ten bruises, one for each of those desiccated, pale fingers. I am a rational person. Ghosts weren't real. I tried to tell myself everything I could to calm myself down. Even if they were, surely a ghost can't just up and kill a person for no reason, right? Eight fidgety hours later, I made my way home with a few stops. 
Inside the house, before I did anything, I walked around every room. At every windowsill and every doorway, I spread a thick line of salt. I burned some sage I picked up in some shifty little spiritual store. I didn't believe in any of this shit, but I'd watched enough horror movies to know the basics. I tried to not let in the little voice, which reminded me that in every movie where someone did these things, the spirit would come back even more violent and angered. The next few nights in the house, I barely slept. I was terrified that at any moment I could wake up to the feeling of the life being choked out of me, powerless to fight back, or to open my eyes to see that gaunt, pallid face directly in front of my own. When I did sleep, the dreams were a blur of terror and horrific imagery, always punctuated by 4am. On the last night that I spent in the house, it wasn't fear that filled my dreams, but some other darkly powerful emotion. It was a sick hatred and delirium that I'd never felt before. In the dream, I walked through the familiar frosted glass front door and dropped my keys into a small glass bowl sitting atop a tiny table by the door. The images rushed and blurred and I found myself in the kitchen. It was dark and I clutched a small, empty glass in my hand. Walking past a tall grandfather clock in the hall which showed it was late night, or early morning, depending how you looked at it. I headed to the spare bedroom, only it was decorated much more extensively and resembled a master bedroom instead. A figure lay beneath the covers already when I entered. In another rushing flash, I found my hands wrapping tightly around a narrow throat. A blonde woman's face looked back at mine, her mouth agape as I watched the blood vessels burst in her pale blue eyes and her thin hands clawed at mine. The hatred boiled in my head as I squeezed harder and harder. Through the pounding of my own heart in my ears, I just barely heard two things. The first was a sickening, hissing rattle as the woman's throat collapsed beneath my grip and she struggled for air. The second was the dull chiming of the grandfather clock in the hall ringing out four times. My eyes flew open and I barely staggered to the bathroom in time to cough up a wad of hot sick into the toilet bowl. My stomach seized up for minutes after there was nothing left to give. I sat bewildered on the bathroom floor, the icy tiles calming the blood pounding at my skin's surface. I'd never felt such horrific loathing, and to see the life draining out of a person by my own hands was an image I simply couldn't shake. By the time my sister arrived home, gushing about her trip and cuddling her oblivious, adoring dogs, I'd cleaned up the evidence of all the salt from all the rooms, and the smell of sage had long since faded, or could be passed off for bad cooking. I sat and listened to their stories, but I quickly made up an excuse as to why I wanted to head home sooner rather than later. I fought the part of me that wanted to ask, so how did you afford a house like this in an up-and-coming neighbourhood? I knew the answer, and honestly, I didn't want confirmation. I didn't want to think about it again. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. So I gathered my things, gave a quick, smiley goodbye, and drove home at a pace which risked a few hundred dollars in speeding tickets. I'm not a paranoid person. I'm not the type to believe in ghosts, demons, or the supernatural. What I saw, and what I felt, alone in that house have shaken me to the core. 
and made me question what I thought was possible. That alone is enough reason to put pen to paper, so to say, and get all of this out in the open. But if I'm honest with you, that's not why I'm here telling you this. I'm telling you this because I'm scared. Because I don't really know what I'm meant to do next. Because last night, I woke up at 4am. Newcomers to a small community can be difficult. Small communities are usually tight-knit, bonded together by ancestry and history. They have their own ways, their own customs, their own familiarities. And a new couple coming along to disrupt that can understandably cause suspicion. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jay Castleberg, the reticence towards the outsiders may be something other than distrust or dislike. Maybe something more like concern. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Nicole Doolin, Aaron Lillis, and Jesse Cornett. So pay attention to the midnight baying. Don't avoid the locals. Listen to what they have to say. And be very aware that they're not talking about greyhound racing when they warn you about the dog track. We knew about the route. We knew about the stories that had always come from that particular track of road. That knowledge came early. The road ran between dense trees draped with moss and moist with the dampness of despair. Shadows clustered between those ancient trunks punctuated by bark faces writhing in remembered misery. Though we called it a road, it was mere lip service to the concept. Little more than a rutted dirt track, runnels carving its surface where the meltwater had cascaded along the packed red earth and stone. Leaves and small branches lay in scattered piles along its edges. There were times when the local residents, the older members, their faces lined with parchment memories, would look to the gap between the trees where it disappeared into the murky darkness and murmur amongst themselves. More than once I'd heard the word release, but it was nothing I would be seeking, no matter how sweet they might imagine it, and despite their apparent longing, whether it was touched by wisdom or something else, I didn't know. Personally, I felt there was an indescribable bravery within those words. For certain, our time would come one day, but it wouldn't be yet. Even now, I cannot believe that Sonia deserved that particular version of what they called release. We hadn't been residents of the tiny community long. After the whole company meltdown thing and the shitstorm that followed, 
Sonia and I had decided to take the money and run. Build a new life for ourselves somewhere out of the hustle and bustle, and escape the constant threats of retribution and the continuing reminders of the lives that had been destroyed along the way. Back to nature, or that was the dream. I'd never really pictured myself as a survivalist, one of those who live up in the hills with a weapons cache and stacked supplies should the apocalypse come to pass. I guess Green Falls was somewhere in between. I'd had its fair share of eccentricities, and bit by bit we were learning the entrenched behaviors of those who had been here far longer than we had. Whether they were societal dropouts or merely those come to seek an altruistic better life among the arbors, they were all here for their own reasons, just as we were. This tiny town was not exactly off the grid, but it was as near as you might get to it, and that suited us just fine. There were rumors of a pack of dogs in the surrounding hills, and whether you gave them credence or not, perhaps they too had their own reasons for being here, or so the stories went. Sonia's hand gently cupped against my cheek on the night that we decided. Are you sure this is what you want, Jeff? I had looked into her eyes and known right then that it was. Hell yes. Hell yes. Had reporters around again that morning. The whole damned thing just refused to go away. I'd looked around our apartment, decked out in the comfortable yet functional, and realized that there was nothing there that I was really going to miss. In the end, it took us about three months to settle on Green Falls, but once we'd decided, that was that. Boxes and movers and trading the car for a more utilitarian pickup. And then we were there. As simple as that. We only had ourselves. No pets, no kids. But maybe that would change in our newly chosen home. Maybe we'd finally have that chance now. Some of the stuff we put into storage until we could work out what we really needed. There was no rush after all. We had enough to survive on until I could pick up some consulting work on the side to stretch out the funds. Green Falls was remote, sure, but it was still within a sensible striking distance from the city. I had no desire to be forced into commuting if I had to, but at least there was still that option. An hour and a half's driving distance was at the edge of acceptability, and I had known people who'd had worse. When we first actually arrived in town, uh, if it could really be called a town rather than a loose collection of buildings that just happened to be in the same general vicinity, we noted the suspicious glances tracking us as we passed, or the outright hands on hips staring as we trundled along what passed for the main road. Welcome, it was not, but it was understandable. The good people of Green Falls liked their privacy and they had no reason to open their arms to untested interlopers, none at all. Rather than being intimidated, we were reassured. It was an extra shield against everything we were hoping to escape. Somehow, some way, there always has to be an accounting. We just didn't know it then. Our new house welcomed us with cobwebs and faint trails of dust, dirt, and dried-up leaf matter across the floors, and a taste of empty expectation. I hadn't asked about the previous owner, but he had been long gone from the little I'd been told. 
There was a large tank out back, our water supply, and a generator, just in case. To one side lay a stack of old firewood. I promised myself that if I was going to go rooting around and all that, I'd be sure to be wearing gloves. It didn't look like it'd been touched for years, and we'd need it, that was for certain. Winter darkness under shadowed trees and the chill that went with it meant the fireplace in the living room would get good use. I made a mental note to check the chimney. You never know what might have made itself comfortable inside, and the last thing we wanted was a living room filled with smoke after building our first fire on a wet and chilly night. We spent a few minutes in the living room's center, just breathing in the atmosphere, the aromas of earth and old wood. Standing side by side, our arms around each other, awash with the scent of not only dried leaves, but also something else we couldn't quite pin down, or perhaps it was just the smell of age. Sonia slowly looked around, hardly believing that we were finally there. Well, this is it. Welcome to our new life. She reached up and kissed me, and then, ever practical, headed off to check out the rudely equipped kitchen. I spent some time locating a broom, and then set about sweeping away some of the trails from the living room floor. By the time we'd finished hauling boxes from the truck, we were exhausted, and ended up collapsing together on the couch, not even bothering to remove the grain dust cover that lay draped across it. For now, we were just content to be there in each other's company among the boxes. No internet, no television, and no one to call us. Dust streaks marking our faces badges of our labors. I stroked the back of Sonia's hair and felt months of tension fading away. We had actually finally done it. Over the next couple of days, as we busied ourselves trying to get the place in some sort of order, we had a trickle of visitors, locals come to check us out, or genuinely there to welcome us. A hint of strangeness accompanied each of these visits, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Maybe it was just the nature of an isolated community. A word to the wise. Watch the track, especially after dark. That came from Rose, one of the older visitors. We were standing out on the front porch, looking out at the trees when she said this. She tapped one extended finger against the side of her nose as she said it. I frowned and shook my head. Uh, what track is that? See that little road over there? You could just see the start of it over there between the trees? It wasn't much of a road, but I could see the place she indicated. So, what is it I have to watch? She shook her head, licked her lips, and then looked away, a troubled expression on her face. Just take care. When I tried to press her further, she suddenly seemed to have forgotten to do something and hobbled back up the road, glancing off into the trees as she went. Just once, she glanced back over her shoulder at us, still standing out there on the porch, then turned away again with a little shake of her head. Sonia reached for my hand. Well, that was odd. Wasn't it? <laughs> so, uh, what's next? The last of the boxes, I suppose. And that was that. That night, we heard the distant howling. I couldn't remember who had told us about the dog pack. 
There was something strange about the sound as we lay there in the darkness. It, it swelled and then suddenly cut out and then faded back in, interrupted. Outside there was a slight wind. We could hear it stirring the branches and I guessed that it was that distorting the sound. Sonia reached for my hand under the covers as the mournful cries swelled eerily in the outside blackness, filtering through the trees. Eventually, it faded altogether, and Sonia pulled herself closer to me, curling up against my body. God, I hope we don't get that every night. She gave a little shudder and pressed tighter against me, sliding her arm across me to lie against my chest. I repositioned myself to hold her close. Eventually her breathing slowed again, became more regular, leaving me staring upwards. My eyes wide open watching the moving patterns of the trees painted in shadows on the ceiling and listening to the intermittent rattle of the wind pushing against the glass. Finally, I slept, despite the vague sense of unease working somewhere deep within the bottom of my stomach. In the distance, every now and again came that cry of the animals moving somewhere through the darkness. There was no store as such anywhere within Green Falls and we were forced into doing supply runs to the nearby larger town of Leighton's Crossing. On the way in, we both wondered who Leighton was and what exactly he'd crossed. Whatever it was, it was lost somewhere in the shadows of history. Houses clustered on either side of something that was at least recognizable as a main street. The general store there was not much, but it was sufficient to keep us stocked for a few days and I made a note that we'd have to think about heading further afield to do a bulk shop. Now, with the pickup, we were in a position to do so. I also made a note that we should probably purchase a large freezer to keep us going. One of the things we'd never thought about that came with living off in the sticks. Sure, there was the generator and the water tank, but there were other things that those used to city life just didn't consider as we were starting to learn. We were so busy getting the place in order that it was several days before I took my first foray out into the surrounding trees. Sonia waved me off, still determined to concentrate on getting the cottage into a state that matched her particular expectations, and that was fine. That vague sense of unease that had come on our first night in the new place had not gone away. It just lingered in the background, nothing expressly conscious, but there nonetheless. I was content just to wander out on my own, exploring. By the time I got back, Sonia might be ready to broach the boxes of books and start filling the empty shelves that stared at us accusingly from the living room walls. God knows we needed something to fill the empty spaces that came with where we now lived. Where had people been before the advent of television and radio and the online presence? Huh. We'd never been much for Facebook and the like. It simply left us too vulnerable, but still. Granted, the town wasn't that primitive, and we hadn't yet thought about the practicality of exploring the options. We'd noticed a couple of tall satellite dishes set high up on poles above the houses, but whoever had lived here before us in our little residence simply hadn't bothered. Perhaps I could ask Rose. As I headed out from our front steps, I made a mental note to speak to her another time just on the off chance. 
Heading out into the trees, it became clear fairly quickly exactly how isolated we really were, how far removed the little town of Green Falls really was. Within a couple of short minutes, I was swallowed up, dappled sunlight painting leaf litter with golden patches between the darker browns. The trees were old, I could see that, but there was new growth and smaller, shrubby plants between. Something rustled through the ground cover, startled by the crunch of my steps through old fallen bark and twigs. I stopped for a few moments and listened. Somewhere off among the treetops a bird belled its call, but it drifted vaguely through the air, its location impossible to determine. Patches of orange-brown earth painted with lighter humps of exposed stone peered through the brown cover of leaves, as if the underlying bedrock was flexing its back, trying to break through the surface. The air was full of the scent of old leaves and even older wood, the taste of dampness creeping through. Of the town, I could hear nothing. No sign that there was any other human presence anywhere nearby. No planes, no grumbling traffic noise, nothing. A breeze stirred above through the branches, the foliage whispering all around me and then it was gone. I closed my eyes and stood, simply listening for a few moments, drinking in the unfamiliar sensation of solitude. Away in the distance, a crow's harsh voice interrupted the sound of creaking branches, and then all was silent once more. Here I was, in the middle of nowhere. Sonia, back at home, probably wiping sweat from her brow with the back of one hand, her hair tied back in a scarf, working hard, and I had simply escaped. I let out a deep breath and continued walking. A few minutes later, the trees gave way to a narrow strip running down the hill from the direction of town. It was rutted and worn, old stones and channels where the surface had eroded. It was barely a road, more like a fire break between the trees. I stood at its edge, looking first one way and then the other. It seemed pretty innocuous. Why exactly had Rose warned us about it? I turned in the direction that led away from Green Falls, walking down the gentle slope. A breeze stirred the leaves all around me, but of birdsong, there was none. I'd not gone more than a hundred meters when I noticed a cluster of something further down, sitting in the middle of the trail, bunched, white and brown. At first I thought it was a pile of old branches that had fallen from the surrounding trees, but... As I got closer, the shapes resolved themselves into something completely else. It was a pile of bones, white, yellow, and darker brown strips still adhering to them. I stopped a few paces from them and looked up and down the trail. A little way off, there was something else, something lying scattered on the road's surface. Something that could also be old, discarded pieces of wood, but also maybe something else. I swallowed, suddenly feeling chill. The wind chose that moment to pick up a little. The groan of creaking wood stirred all around me. I crouched next to the scattered pile. They were definitely bones. I reached out with one finger to poke at them, then I thought better of it and swallowing rose to my feet. 
Far away, somewhere off through the trees, there was a howl joined shortly after by another. Just then, I decided I didn't want to be there, and I stepped off the rough road and back into the trees. The dog, Pack, was somewhere out there. Sometimes a dog's howling is described as mournful. There was nothing mournful about that cry at all. As I retraced my trail back to the house, glancing nervously over my shoulder and starting at every unusual sound filtering through the trees, I decided that there had to be a logical explanation. Like a, a cow or something, probably. Likely it had wandered down the trail to die. The dog pack had found it and then... Yeah, that had to be it. Somehow, however, I wasn't so sure... The bones had not looked quite right, not like the bones of a cow. Perhaps it was some other wild creature. But that still didn't explain the similar pile that I'd seen further down the road. Over the next couple of weeks, other things started to emerge about Green Falls. About our strange little chosen escape from the world. It was only later that things clicked together and I started to understand properly. Random, seemingly unconnected things, like the fact that Green Falls didn't seem to have anything resembling a cemetery. In my experience, even the smallest villages seemed to have a small plot, an isolated field somewhere where at least one person is laid to rest. There certainly wasn't a place of worship. I went for several random wanders through the small cluster of houses and the surrounding trees, bumped into a few of the local residents here and there, once or twice stopped for polite conversation, although there was something guarded about the way they looked at me, how their eyes lingered on Sonia when she accompanied me. Rudy Jeffers was one such. He was out the front of his house when we wandered up that particular day. He straightened as we approached, pushing lank gray tresses out of his face and peering at us curiously with bleary eyes. You're the new folk, aren't you? His gaze stayed on Sonia as he spoke, and then he reluctantly dragged his attention back to me. That would be us, Jeff and Sonia Martin. Rudy Jeffers. You people are in the old Logan place, right? He'd made no move to approach, to shake hands, move anywhere outside the boundary of his own property. He shook his head, his gaze drifting away from us. Yeah, Tommy Logan. That one went early. Uh, how do you mean? He tilted his head a little, looking up at the treetops, anywhere but directly at us. We all go eventually. That one just chose to go early. There was something strange about the way he said it. He rubbed fingers across his forehead and then his attention wandered further down the road to the start of that almost path leading off between the trees. He frowned and scrunched up his face and then shook himself. Sometimes, I guess, it just gets too hard. Oh well, try to enjoy it for as long as you're here. However long that might be. 
as long as she can, anyway. Uh, thanks. I intended to follow up with something polite, but I was already talking to his retreating back. We watched him shuffle across the front yard, up the steps, and into his house, closing the door behind him. I looked at Sonia, and she looked at me. What was that? I have no idea. The longer we spent in Green Falls, the stranger things were. Something Rudy had said, though, gave me an uneasy feeling. Something had happened to the previous resident of our place, Tommy Logan. The people who'd sold it to us had been fairly quiet about that. The way Rudy Jeffers had spoken about it made me think it was nothing good. I took Sonia's hand and drew her away. We weren't going to gain anything just standing there. A couple of days later, I bumped into Rose. To date, she had still been the most forthcoming of the locals. Everyone else pretty much kept to themselves with little more than a nod, or that strange lingering gaze before they turned away again. Hi, Rose. Glad I ran into you. I, I, I just had a quick question for you, if you don't mind. I thought maybe you'd know. Hmm? What is the Tommy Logan story? The vagueness left her face immediately, and she narrowed her eyes, peering up at me. Around us, a gentle breeze stirred the leaves, one or two spiraling down to the ground beside us, dry and brown. Who have you been talking to? I rubbed the back of my neck. It was just something uh, Rudy Jeffers, I think that's his name, told us. Maybe it's nothing. Uh, maybe I, I just misheard. She was silent for several moments. When she finally spoke, she didn't meet my eyes. We didn't expect it so soon with Tommy. Have the dreams started yet? Dreams? Uh, what dreams? This time she did look directly into my face. You will know what dreams when they come. Or you wouldn't have to ask. <laughs> so tell me. No, I don't want to talk about that. None of us want to talk about that, despite the sins we might carry with us. She turned completely away from me and started to head back up the main street. Rose? She lifted a hand, waving my query away without turning, shaking her head, leaving me standing there in the middle of the street, my mouth open in disbelief. Rose! But she didn't respond. When I got back home and discussed the incident with Sonia, she looked troubled. This is just getting weirder and weirder. I'm not sure. Oh, maybe we should just pack up and leave. What? We can't do that. Why? Why not? There's nothing holding us here. We're not comfortable. That much is clear. What? We've barely been here long enough to get a proper feel for the place. Despite everything, I think this is right. We both agreed. Do you really want to go back to all that crap we left behind? She turned away from me, then letting out an exasperated breath, and then steadied herself and faced me. You're right. Of course you're right. It's just... You said Rose mentioned something about dreams. Yes, but she wouldn't tell me anything else. Sonia bit her lip, closed her eyes, and then opened them again. It's just that... For the last couple of nights... What? Well, I've been having this recurring... 
No, forget it. Sonia, tell me. No, forget it. She was adamant. What had Rose said? None of us want to talk about that. Well, that night, I had my first one. I was lying amongst the trees, flat on the ground, dry leaves pressed into my face. Small twigs crunched under me as I shifted, and I, I felt a sense of panic. I had to stay still. No noise, no noise at all. I bit my lip and held my breath, willing myself to be quiet. Indistinct sounds drifted through the trees, but somewhere, not too far off, came the baying of hounds. No, not hounds, dogs. That's what they were, dogs. The moon was bright, its pearl light beaming down in patches through the branches, and there was a smell. Something feral. No, it was something other, with a hint of decay. Between the tree trunks I could see a patch of road, or at least something that aspired to be a road. It looked familiar, as if I had been there before. And I realized that I had, as there in front of me lay a pile of bones. No, more a cluster, their details standing out clearly in the moonlight. Oh god, I, I was there. My heart flipped and I drew in a sharp breath with the realization. Noises drifted through the trees, through the air above me. Something screeched. A bird? Or... I knew I had to lie still. I couldn't. I couldn't move. If I moved, they would see me. I strained, concentrating my vision on that cluster of bones. No, I had been right. It wasn't a cluster. It was more defined than that. It was bound in something. Thin rope or fraying string. No, it was more than bones. Scraps of something adhered to the smooth curves, and, and the shape was familiar. Not just bones. It was a rib cage bound there, lying in the road center. It was a rib cage. A snuffling sound came from the shadows around me, and then I could see them. It was the dog pack loping down the trail, five or six of them. They paused to sample the air, heads lifted, then one bent to sniff at the bones. It was close, close to me, nearer than the others who were standing, scanning through the trees, their heads swinging slowly. Something was wrong with the head of the one closest to me. I peered at it, desperate not to move, but I had to know. One complete side of the animal's jaw looked like it had been eaten away, receding, exposing yellowing teeth down one side. Raw flesh ran in a thin band around the edges. I swallowed, my heart beating faster. As if noticing my scrutiny, the animal lifted its head, turning its gaze towards the trees where I lay. Deep within its eyes, something glowed and that fleshless side grinned at me. In that instant, the beast lifted its head and howled. 
One by one, its companions turned their faces to the moon and joined the cry, barking, howling. The one closest to me turned its face back towards me and started to growl, lips drawing back from its teeth on the side that still had flesh and skin and fur. I woke, my heart pounding, the sweat slick across my forehead and chest. I sat up in bed, staring into the blankness of the wall in front of me. I must have cried out because Sonia reached for me, her hand resting on my arm. It was the dream, wasn't it? I turned to look at her shadowed face as the moon shone through the window, painting it with pale light. It was the dream. What dream? I couldn't finish the sentence. I saw the knowledge in her eyes. And just at that moment, off in the darkness, out amongst the trees, the dogs began to howl. The dreams have not gone away. Always, they are the same. Every couple of nights they are back, either Sonia or me or both of us together, and we sit holding each other in our shadowed room, the sound of dogs in the darkness. We wonder if it was Green Falls that drew us to it. But that was six months ago now. We tried to leave once or twice, but there is something here that holds us. It's as if the will just trickles out of us, defying our attempts. Now, the local Green Falls residents look at us differently. Something has changed. Somehow they know, and we share our lingering looks, filled with the knowledge of what's out there. Now, truly, we've become Green Falls residents, too. Our time will come. I know it will. One of these days, all of the regret and the accumulated guilt will catch up with us. There will always be retribution. It's just how long it takes. Perhaps we'll take the walk down that road together. Perhaps we won't. I'm still not convinced that Sonia deserves this. Despite being complicit in some of the things that went on and her support throughout, is complicity enough? Regardless, the track is still there. It's not going away. I can feel it now. The pack is there. It's waiting for us. I can feel its patience. In our final tale, we join a man as he observes newcomers moving into the neighborhood. It's always exciting and concerning at the same time. Future great friends or looming worst enemies. 
Or maybe they'll just keep to themselves, like some of the others in the area do, and nothing will change. But in this tale, shared with us by author Evan Dicken, any hope of things remaining the same are quickly dashed. Performing this tale are Eddie Cooper, Graham Rowett, Wafia White, Jeff Clement, Mary Murphy, and Kyle Akers. So keep an open mind. Don't judge people by first impressions. It's always worth digging a little deeper. It's better to have a healthy community than a cul-de-sac virus. I was finishing up Molly's fire pit when a U-Haul pulled into the driveway across the street. Like most houses around the development, the modest asphalt shingled Cape Cod had been empty since I moved into the neighborhood about a year ago, so it was something of a relief to see it sold. The street just didn't look right with so many darkened homes, like a smile with missing teeth. I stacked the last of the bricks around the pit, then pressed my hands into my armpit, hoping the warmth would tease some of the ache from my swollen joints. The pain had never come this early before. Usually I stiffened with the ground, winter's chill rhyming my bones like ice on a window pane. But this year had been different, in so many ways. I stood with a sigh half expecting my breath to fog the air. It didn't. The afternoon was crisp, but not cold. Barely jacket weather. Molly would have loved it. I regarded the ragged circle of bricks, swallowing against the sudden tightness in my throat. Another one down. Wind hissed through the leaves overhead, and for a moment it was like being underwater, the late afternoon light shining coral red through a canopy of oak and maple leaves. Above, shoals of starlings circled beneath a flat, cloudless sky. A truck door slammed, followed by an explosion of furious barking. Lemansky's dog was loose again. I stomped across the yard, every step kicking up little puffs of newly fallen leaves. Rufus, a hulking German shepherd with a torn ear, stood next to the curb, paws pounding the pavement with each angry bellow. A youngish woman stood by the truck, her expression calm, almost curious. A moment later, she was joined by a man who mirrored her flat gaze, then took a step toward Rufus, hand outstretched. The effect on the dog was instantaneous. Rufus's barks changed to whines, and he backed away, head low and ears flat. I grabbed Rufus's collar, wincing as the leather bit into my palm. Sorry, not my dog. The man and woman only stood, watching. They were deeply tanned, with dark eyes and black hair. His parted on one side, hers in a loose ponytail. The woman turned back to the truck as if she hadn't even noticed the dog in me, the man pausing to give us a slight half-smile before joining his partner. I shook my head as they got back to unpacking. Not a great first impression. 
Rufus twisted, lips drawn back from teeth the color of old newspaper. I considered giving the dog a good smack, then thought better of it. It wasn't Rufus's fault he had a shitty owner. That was Molly talking. She'd always had a city girl's sensibility when it came to animals, even ones that needed to be put down. The pain in my hands wetted my temper, and I dragged Rufus back across the street and up the cracked pavers that led to Lemansky's porch. Like mine, the house had been built only a few years ago, but Lemansky's refusal to perform even the most basic upkeep had left it looking decades older. Get off my property, Jackson. Lemansky sat in a rusted-out rocker, almost invisible against the cracked siding in his ratty flannel jacket and John Deere cap. His face was weather-beaten cardboard lined and hairless but for a wispy beard stained yellow by smoke. Eyes like potholes stared from under heavy brows, almost lost in the shadow of his nose, a big, ugly thing spotted with burst veins. Your goddamn dog was out again. Letting your house go to shit is one thing, but Rufus could have really hurt someone. He's a good boy. What? Did you just see- Rufus, hail! All the coiled tension went out of the dog. Cautiously, I let go, then crossed my arms to hide the fact my fingers were still crooked into arthritic claws. A little barking is good. Lemansky turned to regard the Cape Cod, spat, then looked back at me, an ugly smile deepening the wrinkles around his mouth. Just what did you mean by that? I mean what I mean. Lemansky edged past me to open the door. At his nod, Rufus followed. Listen. You have to restrain Rufus before something bad happens. Sorry to hear about your wife. Lemansky shut the door. Next time your dog gets out, I'm calling the goddamn cops. I spoke to the locked door, breathing through my nose as I made my way down the stairs, pointedly not kicking over Lemansky's ash can like I really, really wanted to. Joe's tan SUV was parked in front of the garage when I got home. She'd been making a point to drop by every couple of days. The little thrill I got at the sight of my daughter's car faded when I recognized Greg's silhouette in the family room's wide picture window. It wasn't that I didn't like Joe's husband, it was just, well, there wasn't much to him. We let ourselves in. Joe gave me a hug that didn't last nearly long enough. Hello, Mr. Jackson. I thought I told you to call me Daryl. I shared a quick look with Joe, who shrugged. I wanted to stop by before we headed up to Cleveland. She frowned. The dishes are piling up again. I was going to do them after I finished the fire pit. I glanced at the refrigerator, 
Molly's list pinned to it with a magnet in the shape of a cartoon octopus. Joe gave a little twitch of her head, then a soft sigh. The same gesture Molly used when she was working up to say something hard. Dad, can we talk? I found myself tensing out of habit. Greg began rolling up his sleeves. Go on. I'll do the dishes. I shook my head. You don't need to. It's fine, Mr. Jackson. I don't mind. Joe took my arm and guided me into the family room, waiting until Greg turned on the water before settling onto the big blue couch. She patted the cushion beside her, and I sat. I ran a hand over the threadbare armrest. Remember the USS Princess Explorer? She gave an absent smile. How could I forget? We must have sailed this couch around the world a dozen times. The stories Mom used to tell... I closed my eyes. Joe laid her hand on mine. I worry about you. All alone in this house? I'm fine. There's plenty to keep me busy. She waved in the direction of the list on the fridge. That's just it. This is not healthy. If you were closer, I could drop by more often. I don't need babying. Long Pines is right down the street from my house. You'd be around people your own age. They have a pool and AIDS to help when the arthritis gets bad. Joe slipped a glossy brochure from her purse. The cover showed a group of grinning mummies flanked by men and women in hospital scrubs. I said no. I want you close. Why? It's not like you need help with any kids. All the feeling went out of Joe's face. I'm sorry, I I didn't mean... Take a look at the brochure. We'll be back in a couple of days. She stood stiffly. Joanna, stop. You're walking on lava. She looked down at the carpet, picked up her purse, then went into the kitchen. After a few moments of hushed conversation, Greg went outside to start the car. Before leaving, Joe paused in the doorway. I'm not worried about Mom's list, Dad. I'm worried about what happens when you finish it. The SUV's headlights stabbed through the front window, bright enough to bring tears to my eyes. I sat until the engine rumble faded into the background hiss of I-70, then pushed myself to my feet and went into the kitchen. The pain in my hands was bad enough I couldn't wrap my fingers around the pen, so I settled for holding it between my palms and smearing the tip across one of the lines of looping cursive. Only a few chores remained unmarked. Enough to fill an afternoon. 
maybe two. And then what? The empty house did not respond. Truth be told, it worried me too. Joe would have had me carted away if she'd seen me wobble up the old stepladder to scoop fistfuls of cold, wet leaves from the gutters. It had to be done, though. Home ownership was a study in entropy. I'd saved this chore for last, not because it was murder on my hands, but because it was something my wife wouldn't do. Molly never had a problem with hard work, but there were a few jobs. Scrubbing the toilet, fishing hair out of the sink trap, cleaning the gutters that made her gag. Those had always been my favorites, mostly because of the look on Molly's face when I finished, like I'd spared her from something terrible. From the roof, I could see Lemansky out in the drive, elbow deep in the guts of his Ford pickup. Across the street, the U-Haul had been replaced by a beige Prius, but I could see another moving truck down near the brick-fronted ranch at the corner. I'd heard the housing market was bouncing back, but it was nice to see the real proof. Soon, the development would be a proper neighborhood. A light went on in the big bay window across the street, and I realized I ought to head over and introduce myself. I could finish the gutters tomorrow, or the day after. I went inside to wash up and grab a dusty bottle of wine from the rack then crossed the cul-de-sac to ring my new neighbor's doorbell. The woman who answered looked almost identical to the one from yesterday, but with blonde hair and skin several shades lighter. Hi, I'm Daryl Jackson. I live across the street. You had the dog? Yes. I mean, no, it, it's not mine. Lemansky, he lives over there. He's kind of a... Was that you yesterday? We were moving in. I smiled, thinking she was joking. But she only stared. Okay, I thought I could come welcome you to the neighborhood. We're still unpacking. Maybe some other time. All right. Sure. At least take a housewarming gift. I held out the wine. She looked at my hands. You don't need to. Please, it's just Chardonnay. My wife loved the stuff, but it gives me heartburn. I pressed the bottle into her hands. Thank you. Goodbye. She shut the door. It wasn't until a breeze pricked the skin on my face that I noticed I was sweating. I shook my head, then started for home, getting halfway up my driveway before realizing I hadn't gotten the woman's name. Lemansky leaned against his truck, an unlit cigarette dangling from his lips. You're wasting your time. I kept walking. Nice Mexican couple. 
That slowed me down for a moment. My eyes weren't what they used to be, but I was sure the woman had looked different yesterday. She could have dyed her hair, but her skin? No. I must be remembering wrong. Lemansky was just screwing with me. As I hurried into the house, he called out. It takes him a little while to get settled. Drop by again tonight, see if Blondie's still around. By tomorrow, it'll be too late to... I slammed the front door, cutting off the flow of bullshit. It was just a walk. Out to Baffin Road, cut through the woods, down along the single strip of sidewalk, then a quick loop around the cul-de-sac. I used to stop by the office too, but all the people I remembered were either retired or dead. The new faces seemed to change too quickly for me to keep track of. I walked every evening, weather permitting. There was nothing strange about it. This time, though, I felt like I was 12 again, taking the old gravel road on my way home from school in the hope Milo Redding's older sister would forget to shut her curtains when she changed. Lemansky's needling had stuck with me all day, festering until I found myself peeking through the blinds of the house across the street. Unfortunately, while I had a good view of the Cape Cod's driveway, the crabapple tree in their front yard still had enough leaves to block most of the bay window. Usually, the walk took around a half an hour. This time I was back in 20 minutes. Most of the houses were dark and empty, and those few that were lit looked like ships on a midnight sea. I turned off the sidewalk and consciously slowed my nervous hustle. Light from the Cape Cod's window cast checkerboard shadows on the front yard. Inside, the new couple was eating dinner, watching TV at the far side of the room. Their faces were the same, but their hair was black again and their skin was as dark as mine. As they turned to regard me, I realized I was staring. The woman raised her hand and waved. A moment later, the man joined her. Neither smiled. I eyed the row of empty bourbon bottles on Lemansky's windowsill, wrinkling my nose as smells of ash and stale liquor overpowered the scent of wet leaves. My forearm made a muffled thump against Lemansky's door, not nearly as loud as a knock, but all I could manage with hands that felt like someone had filled them with crushed glass. It had taken me a while to digest what I'd seen on the walk. I had spent most of the night alternately sneaking looks at the house across the street and trying to come up with a rational explanation for the couple's change. Sleep must have crept up on me because I woke to the construction site beep of a truck backing into the driveway of the house opposite Lemansky's. This, more than anything, had driven me to brave the morning chill. When another thud from my forearm produced no response, I settled for giving the door a very satisfying kick. Curses joined the torrent of barking as a bleary-eyed Lemansky cracked the door. The old man's beard was matted to one side of his face and he'd traded his jacket for a stained bathrobe and dirty gray socks pulled almost to his knees. 
What the hell do you want? I glanced across the street, relaxing a bit, when I saw the Prius was gone. The new neighbors. They're black now. Come on in. Lock the door behind you, and don't touch anything. I stepped inside, grimacing at the musty, spoiled milk smell of the place. Shutting the door was easy enough, but the deadbolt was one of the old key-and-latch models and defeated my clumsy attempts. After a few embarrassing moments, Lemansky reached over and twisted it shut. I held up a claw. Sorry. It's bad today. Lemansky grimaced, then turned to thread his way through the stacks of old magazines that filled the foyer. His kitchen was a riot of peeling linoleum bathed in the light of a single fly-speck bulb. The formica table at which Lemansky sat was stained a patchwork brown, the circles left by the bottoms of dozens of coffee mugs like rings of an old oak. I selected the sturdiest-looking chair and carefully sat across from the old man. What the hell's going on? Don't really know. Lemansky selected two filmy jam jars from the counter and slopped a liberal measure of bourbon into each. He slid one across the table, then glanced at my hands. You want a straw? What are they? Some kind of monster. Lemansky tossed his drink back, then poured another. Better if they were. Then someone might be able to do something about it. Bastards ran me out of two neighborhoods. But I ain't going easy this time. Don't even care if they come for me. We're ready. Rufus and I. What? come for you. You ever driven down a highway, Jackson? All those other cars, houses as far as the eye can see. You ever wonder who lives in them? I mean, they can't all be full of people, right? Folks with lives all their own, dreams, families, things they hate, like you and me. You know, real people. Lemansky pointed a long-nailed finger at me. Well, they ain't. Not like you and me, anyway. It's them what's out there. In the cars, in the houses, everywhere. Chewing their way through the world. Bullshit. If you say so. Lemansky sipped at his bourbon. That's the thing about it. They act just like us. Driving around, paying taxes, buying houses. But they're not. It's not just the shifting. Even after they settle in, there's all sorts of little tells. Like cutouts of people, you know? 
Just going through the motions of being alive. I can't believe... Don't take my word for it. Ever been inside one of their houses? Like termites. Unnatural is what it is. Lemansky was obviously drunk and maybe crazy as well, but after what I had seen last night, I couldn't just discount the old man. I chewed my lip. What do I do? Ain't nothing you can do except leave or wait for them to get around to you. They've been moving in since last month. I can understand how you missed it with Molly dying and all. Frankly, I thought you knew. What with Joe marrying one. That's bullshit. Greg is boring, but he's not a... I pushed up from the table. Lemansky had to be lying. Greg had never said or done anything suspicious. Come to think of it, he'd never really said or done much of anything. I knew this was a mistake. I need to go. Lemansky waved his glass at the front door. I fumbled with the door latch, face burning as Lemansky shuffled over, checked the window, then opened the door. Think about what I said, Jackson. I all but ran out of the house, not stopping until I passed the fence that separated my house from Lemansky's lot. There I paused, one hand on the rough wood, my breath coming in short tight gasps. This was crazy. Molly's death must have shaken something loose in my head. I, I'd, I'd heard about things like that. One spouse coming unhinged after the other passes. Yes, that had to be it. I was just going insane. Or senile. The sun was high overhead. The sky empty but for a few wispy jet contrails. Faint scents of dry leaves and wood smoke threaded the air, the brisk morning chill mellowing into a perfect autumn afternoon. A few deep breaths were enough to stop my hands from shaking, although not enough to ease the anxious tightness in my chest. The steady wish of I-70 traffic was like waves on a distant beach, and yet as I watched the cars blur by, I couldn't help but wonder what was in them. Flashing lights dragged me from the warmth of uninterrupted dream. Blue and red. They skipped across the family photos and bookshelves, carnival bright in the darkness. I slipped from my too big bed and over to the window. An ambulance sat in Lemansky's driveway and a police car on the street out front. By the time I winced my way into shoes and a jacket, two uniformed men had emerged from the house with a blanket-covered stretcher. The fabric tented in a way familiar to anyone who had ever seen a cop drama. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to step back. A policeman stepped from the shadows as I shuffled up. Is he? Heart attack. I ran a trembling hand across my stubble. 
Shit. We couldn't find any next of kin or contact info. Did you know Mr. Lemansky long? We both moved in when the development opened, maybe a year ago. For a while, we were alone. Well, not alone. I was married. My wife had a stroke, and... I grimaced, embarrassed that nerves had set me babbling. I peered past the man into Lemansky's house. None of the precarious columns of newspaper remained standing, and the floor was littered with trampled refuse. Was there a struggle? The officer glanced over his shoulder. We think he was trying to get to the phone when it happened. Most of it was the paramedics trying to get the stretcher in. He had a dog. Did you see Rufus? No, no dog. Did Mr. Lemansky have any family? Anyone we can call? Not that I know of. Would any of your other neighbors know? I looked around the cul-de-sac. Soft porch lights illuminated brick, wood, and vinyl facades, but the windows remained dark and empty as the moonless night overhead. No, I don't think so. The policeman watched the ambulance back onto the street, then handed a card to me. Here's contact information for the High Street morgue in case someone remembers something. Wait. The officer paused in the act of ducking back into his car. Who called you? What? You said Lemansky was trying to get to the phone. If he didn't call you, who did? Dispatch didn't give us a name. Probably a neighbor. It almost always is. The cruiser's lights flicked off as it pulled away, leaving me alone in the driveway. I darted a wary look around the cul-de-sac, half expecting to see silhouettes in the darkened windows. Nothing moved in the dim moonlight. But for the porch lights, the houses might have been unoccupied. At home, I made sure everything was locked up tight, propping chairs against the front and back doors for good measure. When that was done, I tried Jocelle, but got no answer. Late as it was, she might already be asleep, or maybe she was still angry with me. Either way, I had to get her here. Had to know she was safe. She didn't answer, so I left a voicemail. Joe, I'm sorry. I'll go anywhere you want, just please... Please come home right away. I love you. On the desk by the phone, there was a framed photo of the three of us at Buckeye Lake. Molly in her floppy sun hat, and Joe, ten or eleven, grimacing in the bright orange life vest we'd forced her into. I didn't remember the exact day, but it must have been early in the season because the water wasn't crowded with boats and swimmers. Outside Lemansky's house had gone dark but for the porch light. Shadows moved just beyond the glow, arms full of empty bottles and crumpled newspaper. A procession of shapes passed in and out of the house, 
hollowing it out. Joe would never believe me. Hell, I hardly believed me. Lemansky had mentioned looking inside their houses, but not what I would find. Still, I needed something to show my daughter. I took the picture from its frame, folded it, and slipped it into my pocket. Then I went into the family room and settled down on the big blue couch to wait. It didn't take long to finish the gutters, but I stayed up there anyway, picking bits of leaves and maple seeds from the downspouts. The latter gave me a good view of the neighborhood, and it seemed a shame to leave things unfinished before heading out. I'd stayed awake all night, watching the world bleed from black to gray to the muted colors of dawn. The husband left early, coffee mug in hand as he steered the Prius out onto Baffin Road. It would be a little while before the woman left, more than enough time for me to finish Molly's last chore. I wasn't sure what to expect when I'd finished. There was no sense of release, and any lingering grief was overshadowed by worry for Joe and anxiety over what I planned to do. So I dithered, hoping something would change. But nothing did. At last, the Cape Cod's garage door grumbled open and the woman drove away. If she knew I was watching, she gave no sign, not even glancing up as she thumbed the right blinker and eased onto Baffin. The aluminum rungs of the ladder were cold, even through my gloves, and I hissed as I climbed down. A breeze kicked up as I crossed the cul-de-sac, the insect skitter of leaves on asphalt strangely loud in my ears. I expected to have to search for a window they'd forgotten to latch, but the door wasn't even locked. The front room looked normal enough. A table and chairs near the bay window, a couch across from the TV. I padded across the carpet looking for something. Anything to show I wasn't just breaking into somebody's house. The kitchen was the same. Appliances updated and cabinets freshly varnished. A white plastic phone in its cradle by the door. The door to the study was closed, as was the basement door across from it. It was almost a relief to find nothing out of the ordinary. I was just about to slip back across the street and chalk the whole thing up to creeping senility when a muffled thud sounded from inside the study. I froze. I hadn't seen anyone come or go from the house other than the couple, but that didn't mean anything. The place could be crawling with whatever they were. Still, I didn't have a lot of time. If Joe had gotten my message, she would be on her way, and I needed something to show her. Carefully, I pushed open the study door. There was nothing beyond. No ceiling, no floors, no walls. Just an opaque blackness that seemed to press outward with almost tangible force. I stretched out a hand, half expecting the darkness to ripple like water, but my fingers encountered only air. Cold, 
and slightly humid. Although the morning sun was shining full through the kitchen windows, I couldn't see the other side of the room. The darkness didn't absorb the light so much as ignore it, giving the impression of a vast, cavernous space deep underground. I backed away from the study, more confused than frightened, then jolted as the basement doorknob dug into the small of my back. Numbly, I opened that door as well and found myself facing the same terrible darkness. The sight broke something in me, and I hurried through the house, throwing open closets, bathrooms, cabinets, every closed door I could find. Behind each was more nothing. Soon, I found myself surrounded by holes, as if the house itself was nothing more than a blanket draped over the night. Everywhere that couldn't be seen from outside had been hollowed out. I ran a hand through my hair, ignoring the stab of pain in my fingers. What had Lemansky called them? Termites. A growl sounded behind me, low and threatening. It raised the hair on the back of my arms. I'd half turned when something wrenched the arm of my jacket, dragging me down. Points of painful light flared in my vision as my head glanced off the kitchen counter. I felt teeth through the quilted fabric of my jacket, but managed to slip my arm from the sleeve before they closed on flesh. Although the effort of forcing my crooked fingers to close on the edge of the counter went to scream for me, I managed to pull myself to my feet. Blinking back tears, I turned to see what had attacked me. The German shepherd whipped his head back and forth, my jacket flopping like a broken neck. Heal! Rufus dropped the jacket. What the hell are you doing here? The dog's ears perked up. He looked past me and gave a short, sharp bark. The darkness made a sound. A rhythmic, but insistent. Book pages rustled by the wind. The skirling hiss of the wings of low-flying birds. It came from all around, accompanied by a smell like wet leaves gone to mold. A hand slipped from the cabinet in front of me, its fingers long and boneless. They brushed across the countertop, closed upon the edge of the cabinet, and pulled. I backed away, only to see another arm emerge from the basement door, and the study, and the rows of cupboards lining the wall above the stove. They moved in perfect synchronicity, shadows cast by the same maker. As one, the thing slipped from the darkness, singular in its multiplicity, alone but somehow everywhere. The creature was vaguely humanoid, with skin the inky kaleidoscope of spilled oil. Its outline seemed to pulse, and as it passed through a shaft of sunlight, I caught a glimpse of slick, boneless bodies squirming in the darkness. They, it, stood before me, surrounded me, 
I moaned as the thing reached out, close to but not quite touching my face. I heard a soft click. The hand withdrew, holding something square and white. Dully, I realized it had picked up the phone. Yes, please. The voice that came from the creature's misshapen lump of a head was that of the woman I had spoken to yesterday. I'm at 4129 Oak Court. There's someone in my house. Please, hurry. Something warm and wet trickled down my forehead, and I knuckled it away to see if my hand had come away red. My vision swam. What the hell are you? Like a swimmer, rising through murky water, the creature took on form and substance. Just calm down. You hit your head, Mr. Jackson. How do you know my name? I wobbled, tried to steady myself, but my hand slipped on the counter. She caught me with her arms. Human arms. And lowered me to the ground. You told me yesterday when we talked. I turned my head to see Rufus watching from the door of the study. Now a carpeted room with a desk and a small wall of half-filled bookshelves. Traitor. Rufus cocked his head, tail thumping. There was a flash of pain when the woman pressed the dish towel to the wound on my forehead. Then, a cold numbness. The world seemed to pull away as I slipped back into unconsciousness. Dully, I realized that for the first time in a very long time, my hands didn't hurt. The room was dark. At first, I thought the woman had dragged me into one of the holes. But as my eyes adjusted to the gloom, I recognized the familiar contours of my bedroom. I thumbed the switch on the lamp, then turned it down when I saw Joe curled up on one of the chairs. Someone had set the Buckeye Lake picture back on the nightstand. You were awake. Greg stepped from the darkness of the hallway with a blanket. He spread it over Joe, then put a finger to his lips. She's had a long day. Just what the hell just... I quieted as Greg sat on the bed. Although there was no threat in the younger man's posture... I couldn't help but realize how little I could do if matters turned violent. Greg leaned close, as if to share a secret. Paramedics bandaged the cut on your head. The Cullens aren't pressing charges, and... Is that what they're calling themselves? Of course. It's their name. So, what happens now? Are you going to kill me like Lemansky? I might not have been able to do anything about Greg, but I wasn't just going to sit there and pretend like none of it had happened. 
We didn't kill anyone, Daryl. Call me Mr. Jackson. We're not what you think we are. I've seen what you are. Termites, gnawing away at the world, leaving nothing. That's where you're wrong. There has always been nothing. Most of everything is nothing. Greg nodded at the window. The blinds had been drawn back to show the shadowed bulk of trees in the night sky beyond. Why are you here? Why are you here? I responded with sullen silence. Let me explain. Do you remember this day? Greg picked up the picture from the nightstand and handed it to me. I nodded, my lips pressed into a tight line. What about the day after it? Or the day after that? Or the day after that? Of course not. If you don't remember them, how do you know you were there? I know. Greg gave a little twitch of his head. We live day by day, but when we look back, most of our lives are filled with... nothing. I don't believe you. Greg stood, offering me his hand. I want to show you something. I tried to keep up a glare, but my gaze kept sliding over Greg's shoulder to where Joe lay. Just don't hurt my daughter. Greg followed my gaze. I would never hurt Joe. I love her. I slid my legs over the edge of the bed and let Greg help me up. Although Greg's hands felt human enough, I still grimaced at his touch. The two of us padded from the room, but not before I stole one last look over my shoulder. Light from the street beyond filtered through the hallway windows, turning family photos into dark blots on the wall. Greg led me through the family room and into the kitchen shutting the door before turning on the overhead light. Someone had placed Molly's list on the counter along with a black pen. The gutters were clean. All that remained was to cross out the last thing my wife had ever written. It's important you finish. Why do you want me to? It's not important to me. The paper felt strange in my hand, brittle as fallen leaves. I took up the pen and found, to my surprise, I could grip it without pain. Slowly, I marked a line through the last chore, then looked to Greg. What now? Greg turned to open the door. 
Nothing. The family room was gone. What did you do? Greg stepped into the liquid dark, tendrils of glistening shadow writhing up and around his body. It was always like this. You were always like this. Some fight it, some accept it, most ignore it. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. Before the first, after the last. Always and forever. Greg's features shifted even as they remained the same. Faces overlaid his. A woman across the street. Lemansky. Joe. Molly. I gave a soft moan. I took a step toward the door, hand raised, and paused as I saw my flesh had turned the same rainbow black as the creature I'd seen across the street. In my other hand, the list cracked and crumbled, sifting through my fingers like fine ash. At last I understood. We're everything. Some of the time, at least. Greg shrugged, now human again. Behind him, the darkness faded, replaced by the familiar shadows of the family room. A light went on. Dad? What are you doing up? Joe stood in the hall, the blanket wrapped around her like a shawl. He had to go to the bathroom. I was helping him. She bit her lip. I was worried. I thought maybe you were wandering again. And after your call, and what happened with the Collins? I gathered her into a hug. This time, she didn't pull away. It's okay. It's okay. Dad, I know you don't want to go to Long Pines, but... I'll go. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. I stroked her hair, trying to recall our days together. So few. But all I had left. I looked up to see Greg watching us. His expression blank. The big picture window behind him opening onto the cul-de-sac. The autumn shadows dark but for the scattered pinpricks of porch lamps. Above, the sky was the same.
as we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.